Good morning. Uh, recently, a, a listing came out of the 100 most recognizable movie quotes. You want to test to see how well you remember your movies? Yeah? Okay, let's try a couple quotes. See if you can identify the quote with the right movie. Here's the very first one. Martini, shaken, not stirred. Not bad, maybe a little too easy here. Let's try another one. That'll do, donkey. That'll do. All right, all right, okay. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. Okay, the, the little hint, the main actor in that, his name is The Godfather. What movie did the main actor, The Godfather, play in? Okay, of course it's The Godfather. All right, here's the next one. You ready for this one? Scotty, give me more power. I can't give you more, Captain. I'm running out of power. Who's that? Scotty, okay, what movie? If you get Star Trek, give yourself a high five. Live long and prosper, okay? All right? I'm a doctor, not an escalator. I can do that all day long. All right, the next one, only two words. Ready? I'm Groot. That's right. Guardians of the Galaxy. Some of you are thinking, I've never seen Guardians of the Galaxy. What in the world is a Groot? Well, let me tell you. It's a space-traveling talking tree whose only friend, his friend, is the only one who actually understands him, and his friend happens to be a space-traveling, trigger-happy, talking raccoon. Okay, the storyline might be a little weak, but the soundtrack is awesome, okay? It makes the movie. Here's the last one. One word. Just one word. Ready? Wilson! <laughs> Wilson? Did you guys say castaway? Okay, castaway it is. The story about the castaway is a guy who's basically removed on, uh, lost on an island. And, of course, his only friend that he has for years and years is Wilson. And tragically, in the open South Pacific... Wilson drifts away and he never sees him again. But what really makes it really bad is that his best friend, his only friend, Wilson, is a deflated Wilson volleyball. I mean, how low can you go? I want to tell you something. If you struggle with too much happiness in your life, too much joy, don't know how to manage that, i got the cure for you. Watch Castaway. It is the most ridiculously depressing movie I have ever seen. It's brilliant, and I love it. Movies, movies, movies. But when we look at the Scriptures and look at the Bible, if we looked at the Bible like we look at our movies, if I looked at the Bible like I look at the movies, would I be able to identify those key catch phrases? Do I know the main lines that help me to remember with certainty the main plot, God's big story? And more important still, how would my life be different if I had commanded the scriptures like I do with my own movies? Where I actually have it, I get it. When I hear the scriptures, I know pretty well where they're from. I understand it's contextual based, and I can understand quickly 
how it applies to me. How will it change my relationships? How will it help my mental health? How will I approach my future and my past and my present and my relationships? That is what this series is all about. Learning to have a command of God's Word in our lives in such a way that it actually changes us. For the Word of God is alive and active and sharper than any two-double-edged sword. But it's not going to do us any good if we don't have it in our grasp. Are you with me? So, of course, in these seven weeks, we're going through a rocket-fast display of God's Word. It kind of plays out like a teaser. You kind of get the general gist, but you can't get totally into it. But at least we're going to get the main idea of what's going on. And the heart of it is that you have the, we have the goal that it will entice us to dig into it deeper so that we can have the Scriptures in our lives like the way we often have in our minds with our entertainment. Our actual main theme today is part four, and we're dealing with specifically the prophets. And we're going to now slide into the next uh, screen right away and give you a little bit of contextual background. First of all, the area of the prophets deals with the last 17 books of the Old Testament. Of course, the Bible is broken up in two chunks. There's the Old Testament, then there's 400 years of silence, and then there's the New Testament. Right at the end of the Old Testament are these 17 books, and they are the books of the prophets. And we're going to go through 17 books today, 25% of the books in the Bible. Are you with me? We're going to hit it hard and fast. But we're going to go through it from Isaiah to Malachi. But before we start, we have to get a little bit of better understanding of the context behind the story of this. And we're going to flip now to our next screen right here. We're not at the timeline yet. I'm going to back it up just a little bit further. But what's going on, first of all, is we got Moses leading the people to the promised land. Then we have Joshua bringing them into the promised land. And for the next 360 years, the judges reigned and ruled in Israel on God's behalf. At the end of this, at roughly 1100 BC, all of a sudden the people are tired of having, the prop, having these judges as their leaders. They say, we want to be like everybody else. We want to have a king. So the last of the judges, Samuel, has appointed now Saul, who would be the first king of the people of Israel. He didn't do a very good job, and God replaced him with a man after his own heart, King David. And then certainly at a point around 1930 B.C., all of a, or 1960 B.C., his son comes to power, and we know him as Solomon. In his time, it was considered the golden age, the highest point of the nation. Everything was going well. But at his death, at 1930 B.C., his son Rehoboam came to power, and this is where we're picking up now on our timeline here. In the time of Rehoboam, the nation actually fractures and falls apart. And we get a division between two different nations from one. We have the northern ten tribes in the north, which is represented on the bottom line. And on the top line, you have the southern tribes, which is only really actually Judah and Benjamin. They're roughly the population base is pretty well even between the two of them. And in this period of time is where we hit these minor and major prophets. And you can see all the little yellow tabs that I have there. Those are some of the prophets that we're going to be dealing with this morning. And if you look at this, it's not just a timeline. It's kind of like a report card. Um, the red indicates the leaders that didn't serve the Lord. And the blue represents the ones that actually hit the ball of the park and served the Lord. Now, this is not representative of what's going to go on tomorrow, okay, with the elections. Don't worry about the red and blue stuff. It's just with this, okay? Let's keep it focused. All right? 
in the kingdom of Israel, you can see that they actually mostly all struck out. And God removed them in 722 BC by the Assyrian army because of their unfaithfulness. The prophets were trying to interject, give God's word, but they, they basically got a zero on their report card. Um, the, the, Judah did a little bit better, and you can see that last blue there. That's Josiah where he finds basically the old covenant, the books of Moses. And he was a superstar, really, of reform. But alas, really, God had to remove them as well. In 586 B.C., we see the destruction of Jerusalem that occurs. There's a timeline after that, 70 years where they are in captivity. And our timeline isn't actually big enough because we actually need another 100 years on that because we have three prophets as well that catch up with the return of the captives to come back to Israel to rebuild the temple and the wall. That's sort of kind of the basic timeline of it. But what is important to understand is that the prophets, whoever they were, were always God's chosen, willing servants to be God's mouthpiece, to speak not only their own words, but the Lord's. God would speak to these prophets and tell them what they were to say in dreams, signs, and wonders. Whatever they said that the Lord gave them was authoritative and binding, and it always, always, always came true. That's the difference with these guys. They would speak God's word, but sadly, for the most part, they never listened. And as a result, dire consequences occurred, as we can see the end of their kingdoms that we have in front of us. But regardless of how dark it is and how gloomy it is, and the judgment of God because of the sins of the people, there always was a ray of hope, and that there's a God of mercy who wanted not to destroy and to punish, but to save and to rescue. And it's oftentimes referred to the Messiah, the coming of the chosen one, who would actually redeem all people everywhere in all times. The theme is rock solid, the grace of God. So when you look at the prophets, there's a balance between the severity of punishment for sin and God's unabounding grace. So that is our basic introduction. So let's hit the prophets. Are you ready? 17. Hit the first one. It's Isaiah. Isaiah, he's a pretty good guy of royal blood, well-educated. He's a good speaker. But really, does it really matter? Let's get to the heart of it. The real engine room starts in chapter 6, where we find the calling of Isaiah. God approaches Isaiah and brings him through a vision into the very temple and sanctuary of God himself. He looks up and can see God's glory. His train of his robes fill the temple. He sees the awe and the awesomeness and the absolute perfection of God, and he is crushed. He can't handle it. It's too much. It says that he screamed out, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people with unclean lips. And he literally crumples to the ground. God sends one of his servants, mercifully, to give him the strength to come back and stand up. And he stands up, probably a little jittery. Took him a little while to straighten out. He's in the presence of God, an overriding sense of his absolute wonder and beauty. And he's sitting there, barely standing up in it, in the very presence of God. It's powerful. Then God asks him a question. A general question. He goes, who shall I serve? Or I should say, whom 
shall we send to speak for us? And Isaiah's response was this. Hey, pick me. I'll do it. Send me. I'm your guy. Please take me. There's a great sense of passion in Isaiah. And this is important to note. God gives him the nod. And though we don't have it recorded, I'm pretty sure internally, Isaiah's response was, yes, yes. He chose me. I can't believe it. Some of you think I might have just overreacted. Not a chance. He saw the perfection of the Lord. He had an inside track into his heart and his mind. God was choosing him to speak his words so the other people that he is speaking to have half a chance to see what he experienced and the presence of God. The prophets, not just Isaiah, but all of them were like this. They were all in, totally committed. People look at the books of the prophets like they're boring. Not a chance. These individuals were completely sold out. They were willing to go through hell and back if they had to. They were committed individuals. They went through difficult times. Some of them were executed for their faith, which we call martyrs. But that was because they were grounded and they were faithful to the Lord. Great thing about Isaiah was that he did prophesy about the destruction that was going to come. He saw what happened to the northern kingdom in Assyria and said to Judah, You're next if you don't turn to the Lord your God. But there is so much hope still in his story because actually Isaiah is kind of like the Christmas story. And here we find these words. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Isaiah is an awesome book. Yes, there's a judgment of God, but there's this future hope of God's bigger story of redemption and resolution. This is the book of Isaiah. Going to Jeremiah now quickly. He was also really committed, but he did a little bit more different than Isaiah. Because when God calls him, his response is kind of like, I, really? Uh, I, I'm not a really good speaker, and I think I'm a little too young for the job. And God said to him, he goes, that's enough of that. I will make you strong. I will protect you. And Jeremiah just simply took God at his word, and he was faithful to his call. Did he struggle? You betcha. He lived in tough times, this looming disaster upon the nation, always sat there. So there's this sort of a social political turmoil that was all around. But it was even worse for the prophet himself because he had nothing to say that anyone wanted to hear. He was considered the prophet of doom. Just about everything he said and everything he did indicated that the people were going to get crushed because of their wickedness. And guess what? It didn't happen. Year after year after year, whether he's wearing yokes or wearing rotten clothes or whatever the Lord told him to say, nothing happened. And he became absolutely despised. In fact, he was a bit of a social loser. I'm going to say that carefully and respectfully. Because he himself admits when he came into social situations, he sat by himself alone in a corner because of the indignation that he felt that God put on his heart just kept on ticking on him like as if there was a pickaxe picking at his mind. Tick, tick, tick. It just, it ate him up. 
He couldn't understand how the people couldn't turn to the Lord. That sounds like I'm speaking over emotionally. These are the prophets. They are all in. They were serving the Lord with all their hearts. And though he oftentimes gave his best effort, he finally would break down sometimes and start complaining. In fact, one time he basically said to God, you are a deceptive brook, which basically means in our vernacular, God, you just ripped me off. And God cuts him off and he goes, that's it, time out, give your head a little shake and wake up. I have not cheated you. Now you're going to apologize to me because you just said something that isn't true about me and stop saying dumb, silly things and I'll give you now words that are worth listening to. Apparently, he listened because God kept on restoring him. There's this very much of a very human interaction where he's, he's a guy that's getting beaten up. He's thrown in prison. He's thrown into the wells. People hated him. God even told him, goes, by the way, your own family hates your guts. That's actually recorded in Scripture, not necessarily word for word, but that's the implication that's behind the story. And yet he remained faithful to his call, and you'll never guess what happened. Nothing. The people didn't listen. And he witnessed the destruction of the city. He saw the lives lost. He saw the temple desecrated. He saw everybody moving away, and he saw absolute desolation. He had a perfect failure in his ministry. Everything he wanted was gone. It didn't work. And he also was known as a weeping prophet because he didn't want to see this destruction on his people. And yet, through all that misery, there was this ray of hope and the coming promise of Jesus Christ that God will one day restore his people. I will put my law in their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they will be my people For I will forgive their wickedness and remember them no more. That's a story of Jeremiah. Yeah, the prophets are pretty heavy, but it's solid. You see God's supernatural grace and his seriousness against wickedness at the same time, and it's beautifully balanced. The book of Lamentations is next, and that is a book of sorrow. It's basically like a eulogy, and it's believed to be written by Jeremiah, who was walking most likely through the ruins and the emptiness and the barrenness of what was happening. And he realized that all the promises of God and this this kingdom that would never end was gone. There's nothing there. Everything was in desolation. In fact, the writer himself identifies an understanding that the situation was so perilous that mothers would actually eat their own children. That's how dire the situation was. It's recorded in the scriptures. I want to tell you something. If there's a bottom well in the Old Testament, the most lowest possible grievous thing that you can read, putting a movie castaway on steroids, the downer of downers, it's in lamentations. And yet, and yet, right in the middle of that, God's hope still comes through. And it says this, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. My friends, if you're going through things that you think like there's no hope, there's no way you're going to get out of it, there is just nothing that is there that can possibly sustain you. You're here to you hit a dead end, and it's, nothing's going to happen. I want to tell you something. The stead, 
steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. See, those are some of those important catchphrases that you need to capture in your heart. This is a story, ultimately, of God's great power. Next, go on to Ezekiel as quickly as we can. Now, Ezekiel was a contemporary of Jeremiah himself. Jeremiah was living in Judah, but Ezekiel was not. When Nebuchadnezzar came and attacked Judah, he came in two waves. The first one was in 597 B.C., where he took a bunch of captives away, and the second attack came in 586, where he obliterated everything. But in 597, that first wave, Ezekiel was a part of this. And he actually was led into captivity, all changed and shackled like everybody else, into Babylon. And four years later, God calls him to speak his words of prophecy to the people, not only in exile, but back to the people in Judah as well. The beginning of his prophecies were before 586 B.C., and they were dark and grim, almost guaranteeing that destruction of the city was going to happen. Of course, it did. And then after the destruction of the city, the tone changed. And he said basically to everyone, he goes, okay. God told him, goes, relax. Don't worry about being in Babylon. I'm going to take care of you. Build your homes. Raise your families. You're going to be here for 70 years, and your offspring will come back. So just take it down a notch and relax. That's basically the overlying message of the book of Ezekiel. But he had to be more involved with the message of God than more than anybody else. Ezekiel loved his wife. Just in order. She was a saint. And God said to him, I'm taking your wife today as a sign to the people of Israel. I'm going to wipe out the joy of your life. So when he comes home, she finds her dying, and he has to bury her. And God says to him, you're not allowed to grieve. You're going to pick up to pieces as if nothing happened. And he's like, are you kidding me? Really? I'm telling you, they had to be all out committed to the Lord to go through something like that. And he took it. He picked up the pieces of his life, and he started immediately going through the days of his life without any mourning. And people looked at him like, what is the matter with you? And he said to them, I am assigned to you that when the wave of destruction is going to come, if you don't turn from your sin, it's going to happen so fast that if you survive, you won't have the chance to bury your dead. You won't have a chance to grieve them, and you're going to go right into captivity. What I am doing right now is your future if you do not turn. So please turn. Think about how heavy that story is and the message that was to people. Heavy, tough stuff. But is there any hope? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Ezekiel chapter 37. Probably happened after the passing of his wife. God leads him through a vision. Are you guys with me on this? Okay. So he's going through this vision that God has shown him in some massive wasteland that is just filled with dry, arid bones. It is like a totally bleached out, sterilized surface grave. There's no life anymore. He's walking along this and God's dragging him basically through this massive field of human bones, probably breaking bones because they're dry and brittle. And God's leading him through. Then finally, in the middle of it all, he stops and looks at him and in this vision it says, do you think these bones can live? Oh, sovereign Lord. You're the only one that knows, is his response. So God says, I want you, with my authority, to speak to these 
remains and tell them to come back together. Flesh, skin, the whole works. He's like, all right. So with your authority, God, may all these bones come back. And while he's saying that, the ground begins to shake. And all these bones start sliding into each other. Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of bones coming together. Sinew, muscle, tissue, skin. All of a sudden, the ground is full of these perfectly preserved corpses. It's an eerie picture. And now he's standing there, all this happening so super fast, and now God says, now I want you to prophesy to the wind so that the air can come into them and that they can live. And while he's doing this, prophesying, all of a sudden he hears thousands of voices and mouths opening and hears, <gasps> and as one, they all stand up, fully clothed, fully armed, a light, of just totally alert, sharp, clean, and focusing on him. A whole army is around him, and he's like, what on earth is going on? And God says to him, you see these troops around you? This is the house of Israel to me. I am hearing them coming to me saying, we have no hope in exile. And that our hope is like dry, dead bones. I've heard them say that. Now I've shown you this. Now go back and tell them that I'm the God of the living and the dead. Powerful, isn't it? This is the book of Ezekiel. Moving on now, Daniel. Ready for Daniel? Everybody knows Daniel. Everybody loves the story about Daniel, especially the first six chapters, because it's, it's a story. It's a narrative. You get, of course, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire. You get Daniel in the lion's den, his rise to power, the power of God working through Daniel's life. But you've got to understand something. Daniel's boss was Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is the most powerful man on the surface of the earth and may be arguably one of the finest kings that has ever lived in human history. He was the guy. He's the guy that actually went against his own people and did all sorts of carnage. He's the guy that ripped down the walls. He's the guy that destroyed the very temple of God. That's his boss. But Nebuchadnezzar liked Daniel and his three friends because the power of God was working through them, and they happened to be super brilliant, so they were really useful for him. And he kept them around and close to him and gave them high positions of power. But it didn't change the fact that Nebuchadnezzar was one mean sucker, if I can say that word. He probably is the most ruthless person in the entire Old Testament. Okay, Paul said he was the worst of sinners, Number two behind pole position, it had to be Nebuchadnezzar. He was a cold, calculating, arrogant, mean human being. But God, in his providence, began to show this man mercy. He broke his pride, made him lose his mind, basically, and sent him off in a way into the wilderness for years with enough consciousness to be able to comprehend his own arrogance, and eventually his pride breaks. And he looks up to heaven and says, God, you're not just the God of these prophets. You're the God of everyone, including me. And you can see here what it says. We don't have time to read it, but you can read that last line there of his declaration. Because God forgave him and saved him 
the worst enemy of the cross of Christ is in heaven. And you know what? So is number two. That is the power of God's grace. It's not just for relatively good people or just bad people. It's for the worst people. And not just the people of Israel. Globally, in all places and all times. This is the book of Daniel. And the last part of it is eschatologically based, which is futuristic. And many of his prophecies had come true, including, actually, a reference to Alexander the Great, the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. And now there's these ten, clothes of, these ten toes or feet of clay and iron, which kind of represents a little bit some remnants of the Roman Empire. Interesting, if you take the a map of the European economic community and just focus on the European part and overlap it with old Roman Empire map, they're strangely familiar. Interesting. Individual nations that collaborate to have a common currency. A currency is becoming so powerful, in fact, if you do anything relating to commodities, is beginning to overtake the U.S. dollar. Fascinating. I don't know if that's exactly what Daniel's getting at, but the point is, Daniel's future at his time is still our future. The promises of God back then are our promises still today. God prophesied back then, his prophecies still work today. He's the God of then, and he's the God of now. That's the book of Daniel. Are you with me? All right, Hosea. Hosea, in a word, Gomer. God's call, to, God's, call, God's call to Hosea, it's a hard one to get your head around. God's call to Hosea isn't just to speak his word. God told him, he goes, you see that girl over there? He goes, yeah, she's a well-known prostitute. Yep, that's the lucky girl you're going to marry. I don't believe in luck, Lord. And I, really? He's like, yeah. No, like seriously, really? Yeah. Go to her. And marry her. He approaches her not for solicitation, but betrothed himself to her. The lover, her entire life, everything he has is hers. To be faithful to her, to protect her, to serve her. And guess what Gomer says? She says yes. Could you imagine being at that wedding? Wow, that would be super weird. That is Hosea. And you'll never guess what happened after they got married. It didn't take long before their marriage blew apart. She had affairs. She actually took off with someone. Didn't even know where she was. And the marriage goes crashing to the ground. And everyone's asking, what's that all about? And he goes, I am assigned to you as the people of Israel are. So are you to the Lord. He is the faithful spouse and you have run away and turned your back on him. And he's left holding the bag. But the story isn't done yet. God comes back to Hosea and says, you know what? I want you to find her, not divorce her. I want you to find her. She's in bondage. You pay for her to come out of bondage. It's a different context. And you restore her. You forgive her. And you bring her home. And you start your job again of loving her and serving her and protecting her. And when the people saw that, they said, Hosea, you're insane. What is the matter with you? I am a sign to you that God, even though he's a God of wrath, 
and justice that he delights in mercy even more. Wow, that's powerful. Love it. It's hard to comprehend God's mercy. It's actually, it's, it's impossible. You got Nebuchadnezzar, you got stories like this. You have to understand as the package of this story comes out that it's paving the path to the cross of Christ. I'm seeing myself spitting every once in a while. That's kind of weird. Anyways, <laughs> it's coming to the cross of Christ where Christ is on the cross dying for humanity and there's people below him right there mocking him while he's dying and his response is, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. It's the same theme. Can you hear that rattling through the scriptures? All right, Joel, in a word, grasshoppers, and I mean lots of grasshoppers. We don't know much about Joel, but in Joel's time, they got hit by a locust storm that was like none other. Here, this is what National Geographic has to say about locust storms, desert locusts particularly. They usually can occupy a space largely, roughly the size of twice the size of the city of Edmonton, 1,200 square kilometers. And in that area, you can have as many as 10 billion of these monster critters flying around. The density of it is so thick, in fact, that I actually calculated, if you want to see the calculations later, you can, but just for the fun of it, just to bring it home. If you flew into a locust storm that was in full flight and evenly distributed to a height of 20 meters in this area, and you're going down Highway 1 at highway speed, you can expect an approximately 150 bug impacts per second. It's rain, but not drops of rain. I'm talking monster critters. You'd be skidding off the road in no time. They can eat up to 200 million kilograms of biomass every day. And if wind is right, they can travel a distance of 5,000 kilometers and destroy everything in their path. In 1873, the largest devastating locust plague ever recorded devastated an area larger than the surface area of the state of California. It's bad. When you think about it in ancient times, when you see that in our context, that's basically like, like some crazy stock market crash that we've never seen on wings. You're going to lose everything you have. All your security is gone. Everything you worked for is gone. You have nothing, only perhaps the reeking understanding that you might, just might, live long enough to see your children starve to death. This is the issue with locusts. Joel says himself, it is like a mighty army with lion's teeth. He saw them coming over the mountains like crackling fire. They were so voracious that they ate the barks off the tree, leaving them like white stems. It was devastating. They dimmed the sun. They muted the moon, and they blotted out the stars. They would punch through human defenses without breaking rank, climbing walls, invading homes like a fire that consumed everything. The locust storm was brutal, and Joel tells the people it's not an accident. It's by design. This has been done by the Lord because you have sinned against the Lord, and he's brought judgment on you. But when you read the book of Joel, it's very warm and appealing. And there's a sensitivity there when you read it because he says, turn back, turn back. God wants to remove this stuff and bring back a blessing to you. 
This is the very much the heart of the story of Joel. And it also goes prophetic into the future. And afterwards, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, and your old men will see dreams, and your young men will see visions. Moving along quickly now, we're going to Amos. He's a farmer, and he's gutsy. He loved to work with, uh, I guess, groves and with, and with livestock. He was a guy of the earth. And he was very sympathetic and empathetic to the injustices around him. And yet, even with him, there was a story of hope. He's considered the prophet of prophets. He was utterly fearless. It's said of him that he feared God so much that he feared nothing else. That is the story of Amos. It's a great read. Going on to Obadiah. 21 verses. It's about Edom and their destruction because how they failed to help their cousins, technically, the Israelites, in their moment of difficulty. God is ultimately just and fair with all nations. Jonah is next. Everybody knows the story of Jonah. Of course, he flees, gets consumed by a big fish. He gets thrown up on a beach. My middle name is Ralph. And there was a movie that came out that kind of depicted throwing up as Ralph. And I had a new nickname, Ralph. Okay? That's what happened to Jonah on the beach. He goes and does what God tells him to. He preaches to the people of Nineveh. And they listen. And God spares them. What we don't really understand is what's going on in Jonah himself. Why did he flee in the first place? He's God's man. But he also had a problem with bitterness. Because Nineveh was one of the key cities of Assyria, which was a huge threat to the northern kingdom. It is their big enemy. And he probably had an inclination that this nation was going to destroy his. And now God's sending him to actually spare them? Why? He had a hard time understanding God's grace for all people, including his enemies. Interesting, Jeremiah is a weeping prophet because no one heeded the word of the Lord from him and destruction came. Jonah, on the other hand, became suicidal because he spoke the word of the God and people listened and they turned. Okay? It's weird. All right? Jonah had some problems, but God was faithful even to his own enemies. Isn't that awesome? Next. Micah. Micah is like Isaiah very much. They lived in the same time. They did different audiences because Isaiah was sort of in that realm of royalty. And Micah was just a guy, just an ordinary common guy talking to common citizens. Their message is the same. The judgments were the same. The outcome was the same. But he also reads like a Christmas story. But to you, Bethlehem, Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old and ancient times. The God of hope rings through and through and through. And now we go to Habakkuk. Habakkuk is a kind of an introspective conversation. Habakkuk had some issues with God, actually, some big questions. He couldn't understand God's justice, his timing of things, how he did stuff. It kind of tore him up. And the problem was, most likely, that he wasn't the only one thinking that way. So when he was asking these questions, God actually answered him so he could share those answers 
with other people who probably had the same question. The first question was, how can so much wreaking devastation and hatred and criminality be tolerated by you? You have to understand in that time, people actually, when they served these gods, some of them would actually sacrifice their children on altars and burn them. That's how bad it was. And he's seeing all this crazy, insane nonsense going on. He's like, when are you going to bring this stuff to a stop? Finally, God says, I am. I'm bringing the Babylonians here to set the record clean and start off fresh. And then the second question came, Babylon? Are you kidding? They're even more wicked than we are. You're going to take something more vile to be a sense of justice for something that's not as vile. What is that all about? He couldn't get his head around it. And at some point, he just finally realized, you know what? I'm just going to trust you. I can't figure you out. The righteous shall live by faith, is what is said in Habakkuk and is repeated over and over and over again in the New Testament. The righteous shall live by faith. I don't get it all the time, but I'm going to trust you, Lord. And that's what he did. Though the fig tree does not bud and there's no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. Reckless, abandoned trust in a God who he knew was merciful and kind and just. Zephaniah kind of a combination between Isaiah and Jeremiah. He too was part of royalty, and like Jeremiah, he prophesied about the coming destruction, and nobody listened, but he also had the tone of God's mercy and the coming of a chosen one in his words. Now, going to Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. These are the three that lived in a slightly different timeline. They were the ones that were a part of the return of the captives from captivity back to, the, um, back to Judah. In particular, Haggai and Zechariah kind of occur at the exact same time. We're going through a church building program right now. As you know, we're part of the FECC and we're taking our time doing that. And we're just trusting God for His timing and we're relaxed with that. In this right time, it's going to happen. Amen? Don't have to push it. Don't have to ignore it. It's all good. But in their time, it was a different story. God says, you guys are going to go back, and as your number one priority, you're going to build the temple first, because they would concentrate the people and remind, cause, them to remember, cause them to be reminded of the fact that the Lord's the center of their life and their culture and their nation. And you know what they did? They didn't do that. They kind of were a little tardy about it. And they built their houses, and they planted their crops, and they kind of did it off to the side after hours. And oh, It's a little late today. I'm not going to do it. These prophets came and said, you want to know why you're having problems with having proper crops? Or you're having almost no yields at all? It's because you're missing the priority. This is the time to build my temple. Listen, if you do this, I will make sure when you build your houses, all the trades will line up and they'll cut you deals and you'll get it done faster and you'll get these wicked awesome crops. Just trust me, prioritize my agenda and I'll take care of yours later on. But you've got to build the temple. And with those words and those encouragements, the people were faithful and they built the temple. Those two books are dealing with the fact of where are your priorities? 
If God's giving you something, do your other priorities come into line? Or are we centering ourselves on God's priorities? Special catchphrases. Malachi, our last story, and with this we end. Malachi is an interesting storyline because it has a conversation-like situation going on between uh, Malachi and the Lord. God had basically three grievances. And there's this conversation going back and forth with questions. God had a problem with the people because they were half-hearted in the worship. Divorce was rampant. Couldn't stand that. Hated that, in fact. He said, I'm not even going to listen to you because you actually hate the people that are supposed to be closest to you. What's the matter with you? Don't come even come and talk to me if you're going to be that way. This is the tone of Malachi. Then as well, they didn't trust God with their tithes and offerings. He wants us to trust him with everything we have. And a little bit that he asks us is a matter of our confidence and our trust in him. And he just, the people just weren't doing that. And that's the practicality of this story, is that God speaks to them in a candid manner, but it's meant to be restorative. He just kind of gets to the point, not to drill it in and to destroy them, but he's like, come on, wake up. Remember that your love for me is a practical one. Be genuine in your worship. Be responsible in those relationships that are closest to you. They actually really matter to me. And in that, we find in the closing of all of the Old Testament, the promised Messiah, the one that's going to come. But it's going to come with yet another prophet. It's an allusion to John the Baptist. And we find these words almost at the end. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of their children back to their parents. Do you realize that God's restorative plan for us, it's not just our restorative plan with ourselves and with God, it's with each other, with our relationships. This is really important. 400 years of silence now occurs, as if almost to give the people a chance to really think about those last words and let them echo in their minds. And then we come into New Testament times. This is the important thing about it. All that we've just talked about right now, a God of justice, yeah, can't tolerate wickedness, but he doesn't want destruction. He wants us to come to him because he loves us and wants to restore us. He wants us to have that experience like Isaiah did in our lives on a day-to-day basis. Not a theoretical understanding of Scripture, but something like you can own, like you own the movies in your mind, something that you can carry with you all your days. Amen. Please stand with me if you can in closing. Perhaps there's someone here right now that in their heart and their mind, they're like, you know what, Lord, I, I realize that I have a deficit in my life. I want to give my heart to you. I want to accept Christ in my life. That mercy that he has already foreshadowed again and again and again and again in the Old Testament, and now it's for us right now. How many of you who have not yet made that commitment would be like Isaiah right now and say, Lord, here am I. Here am I. If you have that in your heart, I'm just going to ask you just to raise your hand and say, Lord, I I give you my life right now. Don't worry about what anyone else says or what everyone else is doing. Raise your hands with me because I want to tell you something. God loves you, and he's got the best for you. 
And he wants to walk with you all your days. Not some churchy anything, but a relationship that's real and vital and living day by day. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your promises. Lord, for those here, Lord, who may not know you, we just ask you right now that you continue to work in their hearts. Lord, and if they're making that commitment, Lord, I want to serve you. I want to know you. Lord, I pray that you would enter into our hearts, Lord. And I thank you, Lord, that you have given us a unique calling, Lord. Lord, to be your people and to belong to you. Thank you, Lord, for your awesome God story of grace and power for us. Lord, help us to seize the day. And Lord, that we live a life that's honoring to you. And all God's people said, Amen.